welcome to this podcast of our new series, Anything But Ordinary. Anything But Ordinary. You looked at me for a moment like we should have said it together. You want to try it again? Yeah. Anything, Anything But, but ordinary. ordinary. Much yeah. better. Yes. <laughs> it's a little bit of a play on words um, because we're doing it during ordinary time and a sanctified art puts out this series. And I really like their resources because they care so much about the visual art and helping people reflect in all sorts of ways. Um, They don't put together scripts for services. They don't really put together a ton of preaching notes. So there's a lot of freedom to address the issues our community has or that might come up from the text, but a lot of resources to help supplement that conversation. Cool. Yeah, so ordinary time is kind of, Pentecost goes on forever, right? It does, yeah. And so it feels like ordinary, so it just became ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the whole Pentecost fire thing wears off after a bit, so, you know, <laughs> fire, it, become, it becomes ordinary. Burned out. Yeah. It's a burned out. Yeah. And uh, the thought is going through, um, really, the Abrahamic family tree and some of the stories we might have heard as kiddos um, that are worth our revisiting because they are our stories. Yeah, one of the things I think is is important for us to keep kind of touching back to is that these are these are not just our stories as Christians, but they they had their roots in the Judaic Bible, and they're mm-hmm. also in the Quran as part of the uh, part of the stories of the um, the Islamic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there we are joined as people of Abraham, children of Abraham. Abraham. So we'll be covering this for twelve weeks. <sighs> And we are excited. You're along for the ride with us. Hang on. Well, all right. We are in week four already of our series. This week, uh, we're dealing with the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. The text is in Genesis 24. The lectionary is actually verses 1 through 67, though we did 29 through 67 in uh, the service because it was a little long. It's also a little bit repetitive, and you'll hear more about that in the message. So I invite you to stay tuned, listen to the scripture and the message, and then there'll be some commentary afterwards uh, as I invite my guest, Deacon Pat Cadillier, to uh, give some reflection, and we'll have some conversation about the text. All right. The text is Genesis 24. This text actually runs verse 1 to verse 67. We're going to do 29 to 67, and you'll find out why in just a little bit. Rebecca had a brother named Laban. Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. He had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister and had heard her say, the man said this and this and this to me. So he went to the man, and there he was, still standing with his camels at the spring. Laban welcomed him. Come on in, come on in, blessed of God. Why are you standing out here? I've got the house ready for you, and there's also a place for your camels. So the man went into the house. The camels were unloaded and given straw and feed. Water was brought to bathe the feet of the man and the men with him. Then Laban brought out food. But the man said, I won't eat until I tell my story. Laban said, go ahead, tell us. The servant said, I am the servant of Abraham. God has blessed my master. He's a great man. God has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, servants and maidservants, camels and donkeys. 
And then to top it off, Sarah, my master's wife, gave him a son in her old age, and he has passed everything on to his son. My master made me promise, don't get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. No, go to my father's home, back to my family, get a wife for my son there. I said to my master, but what if the woman won't come with me? He said, God, before whom I've walked faithfully, will send his angel with you, and he'll make things work out so that you'll bring back a wife for my son from my family, from the house of my father. Then you'll be free from the oath. If you go to my family and they won't give her to you, and you will also be free from my oath. Well, when I came this very day to the spring, I prayed, God, God of my master Abraham, make things turn out well in this task I've been given. I'm standing at this well when a young woman comes here to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a sip of water from your jug. And she says, not only will I give you a drink, I'll also water your camels. Let that woman be the wife God has picked out for my, my, my master's son. I had barely finished offering this prayer when Rebecca arrived her jug on her shoulder. She went to the spring and drew water, and I said, please, can I have a drink? She didn't hesitate. She held out her jug and said, drink, and when you're finished, I'll also water your camels. I drank, and she watered the camels. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, whose parents were Nahor and Milcah. I gave her a ring for her nose, bracelets for her arms, and bowed in worship to God. I praised God, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me straight to the door of my master's family to get a wife for his son. Now, tell me what you are going to do. If you plan to respond with a generous yes, tell me. But if not, tell me plainly so I can figure out what to do next. Now, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is undeniable, undeniably from God. We have no say in the matter, either yes or no. Rebecca is yours. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as God has made plain. When Abraham's servant heard their decision, he bowed in worship before God. Then he brought out gifts of silver and gold and clothing and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave expensive gifts to her brother and mother. He and his men had supper and spent the night, but first thing in the morning, they were up. He said, send me back to my master. Her brother and mother said, let the girl stay a while, say another 10 days, and then go. He said, oh, don't make me wait. God has worked everything out so well. Send me off to my master. They said, we'll call the girl. We'll ask her. They called Rebecca and asked her, do you want to go with this man? And she said, I'm ready to go. So they sent them off, their sister Rebecca with her nurse, Abraham's servant with his men, and they blessed Rebecca, saying, You're our sister. Live bountifully and your children triumphantly. Rebecca and her young maids mounted the camels and followed the men. The servant took Rebecca and set off for home. Isaac was living in the Negev. He had just come back from a visit to Berlhairoi. In the evening, he went out into the field. While meditating, he looked up and saw the camels coming. When Rebecca looked up and saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man out in the field coming toward us? This is my, my master. She took her veil and covered herself. After the servant told Isaac the whole story of the trip, Isaac took Rebecca into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He married Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac found comfort after his mother's death.
the word of God that is still speaking. I know you were thinking to yourselves, I really wish we would have done the other 28 verses. So this season in the Christian church year, these weeks after the coming of the Holy Spirit to birth the church at Pentecost, this has come to be called ordinary time. Not sure what happened, but one would think that the gift of the Holy Spirit would have engendered a bit more creativity, maybe a bit more pizzazz. Maybe they could have called it amazing time or building time or party time. But no, we get ordinary time. Here, however, we at Chapel Hill have chosen to take the Genesis scriptures of this ordinary time and make it our own as anything but ordinary. Thank you very much. And so a reminder is in order of just where we have been in this series that is anything but ordinary. Week one, chapter 15 of Genesis, God visits in the form of three strangers. God tells Abraham just what is what. Week two, chapter 21, with a little bit of chapter 16 woven in, Sarah tells Abraham to take her maidservant Hagar that she might conceive in her old age to bear Abraham a son, and all does not go well. But God sees, God hears, and God redeems, or God makes right. Week three, Last week, chapter 22, God speaks and calls Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Week four is today, chapter 24, Abraham speaks to a servant, a slave, to go. Okay, so. So the story at its most skeletal form is not terribly complicated. Sarah has died and Abraham has the responsibility to make sure that his son, his heir apparent, Isaac, has a wife such that the tent of hospitality, empty since Sarah passed, might again be filled and that the promise of God would pass on to the next generation. It is Abraham's responsibility to God, to his bloodline, to what would become a great nation. And Abraham takes that responsibility seriously and he talks to his slave. He makes an oath. That goes in the first part of the chapter. An oath is made that the slave would go to Abraham's homeland in Mesopotamia to arrange a marriage. The slave arrives at Abe's ancestral home just as the woman gathers at a community well. The slave prayed to Abraham's God for direct intervention, praying that God would show him clearly the woman who was right for Isaac, God who sees. Immediately opens the slave's eyes to see Rebecca, daughter of a relative of Abraham named Bethuel. Rebecca is stepping into the well to fill her jar. And the slave greets her, and she responds. It's clear that the slave, it's clear to the slave that she is the one that God has chosen. And Rebecca gives the slave water, gives the camels water, which is no quick deed, by the way. It takes a while to satisfy a bunch of camels. The slave asks for accommodations for the night, and they go to the house together where Rebecca's brother Laban plays the role of both host and marriage negotiator. Rebecca is asked by her brother and sister-in-law whether she wants to leave immediately to meet the one who would become her husband or wait 10 days, as her brother and sister-in-law suggest. 
I'm ready to go now. And they go. And they meet Isaac on the beach at sunset, and they kiss like forever and tell each other how they've always known. And then Isaac gets down on one knee and flips open a ring box from Neil Lane Hollywood and says, will you? Oh, sorry, that was an episode of Bachelor. I get confused. Seriously, this is a long chapter that's written in such a way that the story waves the flag of its self-importance by retelling the story over twice in the narrative. First, we get the direct story of Abraham telling the slave what he, he will do, and then we get the story of the slave telling Rebekah and Laban what he's done. It's a lot, right? And so much of it is lost to us 21st century progressive American Christians, right? I mean, Abraham sends a slave to get a wife for his son. The last time Abraham used a slave to fulfill family wishes, things did not go at all well, remember Hagar. Pregnancy ensued, jealousy raged, slave and child were banished to the desert. Not a good scene. Abraham, really? Have we learned nothing? There are still some cultures that have arranged marriages, but by and large, we have not taken much time to understand that. It's safe to say what was going on here had nothing to do with love until the narrative concludes with Isaac loving Rebecca. We really don't know, we're not privy to how Rebecca felt about Isaac. Rebecca's journey to marriage to her new life in a new land begins at the well. It begins at the well. Marriage in the ancient Near East was largely transactional. It was contractual. We don't get a ton of that here, a little bit. Trinkets of gold and gemstones are gifted freely by the slave, but there's not kind of a tit-for-tat exchange. For us, we should remember that in the Hebrew Scriptures, couples met at the well. Jacob will later meet Rachel at the well. Moses meets the seven daughters of Jethro, one of whom, Zipporah, will be his wife at a well. Rebekah does not meet her husband at the well, but does meet the one who will lead the way to her husband. Where? At the well. At the well. What we get in the slave we get in the family and in Rebecca is a deep sense of spiritual appreciation, of thanksgiving that the hand of God was in Rebecca being discovered. This non-transactional transaction really runs throughout the whole text. Unlike the other narratives that run from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50, this narrative text of 67 verses is calm. Did you catch that? It was a chill text, almost pastoral, with virtually no conflict. Abraham does not raise his voice to the slave, does not threaten the slave, but in almost a parental gesture in the part we did not read says, put your hand under my thigh. Okay, that sounds really weird to us, right? <laughs> put your hand under my thigh. I want to make an oath with you, a promise. It's the foundation of a covenant, a particular kind of spiritual contract that understands that God is in the deal. God is witnessing, God is sealing the deal, not just accountable to each other, the slave and Abraham, but also accountable to God. Put your hand in this vulnerable spot. Perhaps better translated, put your hand under my loins. Ooh, 
It has to do with the passing on a wish of generational fertility. In our culture, we put our hand on the Bible, right hand, put our hand on the Bible and promise to testify, right? We promise to God to testify honestly on the, on the Bible. Testify, it's a word etiologically linked to testicles or testes. The oath is made by the old man seeking to pass on the promise of birthing a well-populated nation to his son. It's almost, it's almost a whisper, this oath. My son must not marry a Canaanite. That's not my tribe. So go to my hometown, find my relative, discover a bride for my wife, go. And the slave goes quietly, prayerfully. See, this is a solemn act of covenant making, a solemn act of covenant making, like the wedding that Andrew was talking with the kids about. It's a language we use when I stand up here or down there before a couple wanting to get married in church. Often, often that begins by meaning we want to get married in a building called a church. But after six weeks of pre-marriage counseling, it can sometimes help the smitten to understand that when they stand up to speak promises, vows to each other, it is not just the two of them involved, family and friends for sure, but it is also this amazing, disquieting spirit of the living God that falls afresh on them in the moment when they speak and the moment when they say, I do, and in the moment when I pronounce them married. You've made solemn covenant. What God has joined together, we say, let no one pull apart. Covenant. Let no one pull apart not even the Supreme Court that is shaking marriage right now again. Another commentary. The entirety of this text is about covenant, and it draws us to consider how attentive we are to the gentle and sometimes not so gentle leading of God in human life. Unlike the other chapters we looked at in this series, God is passive here. In chapter 15, God spoke through visitors and angels. In chapter 21, God was up close and personal with Hagar and Ishmael. In 22, God spoke directly to Abraham, instructing him to what? Go and sacrifice that son Isaac, just because. Here in 24, God does not appear at all. God does not speak. God receives the prayers of the slave of Abraham, and God is given credit for engineering the discovery of Rebekah. And yet the entirety of the text is about humans in faithful response to God, working out what needs to be worked out such that a new generation might, might be birthed, so that a new generation might grow, be faithful to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and ultimately the God of Jacob. And as much as God is in the background of this text and stays in the background of the text. Nothing happens that happens that is not for, about, and graced by God. The human characters are, are merely being faithful in that they know that it, that it is not per se about them. It is not about them. Need a little proof? The slave of Abraham goes unnamed here that we very clearly is identified in chapter 15 as Eleazar, the one who would be heir to Abe's fortune had no baby come along. No name because he was a slave here, maybe no name because he was a slave, or no name to make it clear that it was not about him. More likely, 
a narrative device to remind us of the presence of God moving around even when we are not aware, but certainly when we get ourselves and our egos out of the way. So what, preacher? I think there may be a ton of so what's here. But I think I would call us to center on the covenant that calls us to be attentive and responsive to God's leading. Abraham knew he was getting on in years. His spouses died. God's promise was for the long view. And as much as Abe liked having Isaac around, it was time. He could not go himself, so he makes oath with his slave. Go do this thing for me. And the slave goes knowing that this will definitely cut him out of being, being the one to carry the Abrahamic fortune. But the slave does not try to go it alone. The slave does not take advantage of getting out of slavery by calling in the oath. He had come to know this God with whom his master speaks, and he prays that all will go well. Rebecca maintains her agency. She's got control, responding assertively, clear of her place, clear about what she wants. And so too, Laban. Well, wouldn't you like to stay a little bit longer? Wouldn't you like to get used to things, get your stuff together? And Rebecca says, no, I am ready. Rebecca knows. There is this lovely sense of waiting and moving and waiting and moving and waiting and moving, the matching of steps with a dancing God throughout this whole text. The simple covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people, is echoed in the dance. And it is no different for us in our not-so-ordinary times. Abraham knew and acted. How often do we get a God nudge and simply ignore it? Must be indigestion. Or we wait. Maybe we need 10 nudges. Maybe 20 maybe more. Abraham and everyone in the story pays attention to the movement of the divine spirit without embarrassment, and they act. That divine spirit leads the slave and Rebekah and the caravan back to the promised land of Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac, did you catch it, just returned from Ber Hiroi. That might have sounded familiar to you. It's the well of the living site, the place where God saw Ishmael and Hagar struggling in the desert. Maybe they were dying in the desert. It was after they were thrown out by Sarah and Abraham. So how interesting that Isaac was there. We don't know why Isaac was there at the well of the living site. But what we know is that while Rebekah was at the well, hearing about her future from a strange slave, Isaac was at another well, coming to terms with the death of his mom. And at two disparate wells, very far apart, covenant was being formed. That's a God thing. Just when we think we get it, there's a God thing. When the caravan approaches, Isaac's waiting in the tent for his mother, ready to fulfill the promise of whatever is next. And we come together as community. We come together as community that claims that God has called us into covenant to be a body of the faithful. More than that, to be the body of Christ, alive, well, working in the world, to be the body that sees and the body that hears, responding as God responds. So this morning, as we gather at the table, we take the simplest of nourishment. Bread, grape juice, you will not get filled by it. We take it to prepare to be seers. 
to prepare to be hearers and doers for a world in need. So may it be so. Amen. Well, all right, we are back with another episode of our podcast, and today I'm honored to have uh, Deacon Pat Cattelier joining. Uh, Pat was part of the worship service this morning, did, did the pastoral prayer, and also uh, helped with communion, and I asked Pat to be a part of this podcast. Uh, she was honored to get an advanced copy of my message uh, so that she could, uh, she's never done pat- podcasting, uh, she's had an opportunity. So, uh, you ready to have some fun, Pat? Uh, you bet, Barry. All right. So, um, what, were, what were your impressions? What would you like to start off with? I liked that you made this about God, even though God was passive in the text. Um, I thought it was helpful that people um, could understand that God, um, at least in the Old Testament, that God is is always with them and in them and nudges us um, and we don't have to be in a church or any other place. Yeah, we do a good job of kind of talking ourselves out of the nudges that we get. Um, I think for me anyway, sometimes it's because I know that if I get that nudge, it's going to involve my doing something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, although I, you know, I was thinking that perhaps... I don't know if this would have been a story without the servant. Right. And had had I been preaching, you know, and I'm just saying, had oh, I'm, that's good. I might have um, have focused a bit more on the servant. How do you think you might have done that? Because um, I I went through a couple of different drafts of this, and um, and I didn't want to go too too deep in the weeds. But how would you have done that? Well, I, I think it. it was it would boil down to a faith issue for me um the fact that he was um a servant and was incredibly obedient to um Abraham and um not not knowing a whole lot about who he was um I thought it was a message might be there that it doesn't matter who you are God will still speak to you um, and right. I, I thought, for me, I would have liked to have, to have seen maybe a little bit more, uh, uh, to have heard a little bit more about the servant, um, because his actions were, were commendable. Um, you know, he listened to Abraham, he listened to God, um, you know, he finds a wife for Rebecca, um, and he does, and then he brings her back home, and all of that is done in faith and, and obedience and submission to God. And just because he's, I wouldn't, yeah, maybe he's marginalized. And I think God speaks to those in the margins. Yeah, well, I mean, he certainly is marginalized by virtue of being a slave. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the, the language here is servant, slave, it's kind of hard to know exactly. Yeah. But yeah. clearly, he's not a, he's not. Um, he's not of the faith of Abraham. So that's another big thing is he, he, he has seen something in the faith of Abraham that lets him know that he can pray directly to God. Yeah. He can speak directly to God. Um, the other thing that's interesting about, about uh, this character is that um, he's, um, he's given the opportunity to go free. 
the oath gives him the, the opportunity. He could have lied and said, well, I did not find her uh, or she would not come. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would have been freed because the oath said, either way, you will be freed. And he comes back, having, having done the right thing, he comes back and does not declare himself free, even though the oath gave him the opportunity to do that. So yeah, he was a singular individual, no question about yeah. that. Yeah, I I liked whatever the writers did back then. I really liked his role in that story uh, a whole lot. Yeah, he had the biggest role for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but on on the other hand, um, I liked um, I liked Rebecca's uh, agency when when her brother asked her you know, why don't you stay for 10 days, just see who this guy is and whatever, and she says, no, I'm ready to go. I found that a little mysterious um, and not typical of the culture um, in that piece. The other thing was, is why did um, Abraham tell the servant that he couldn't select a wife from the Canaanites? Did it, was it because he wanted somebody from his own land? From his own tribe, tribe his own yeah. land, and um, you know the the, Can- the Cana the Canaanite region is becoming the promised land, but it's not there yet. And and um, I think that Abraham wanted to make sh- make clear that they wanted a purity of um, uh, of generational transfer, right? So that so that Isaac is marrying into the family line. Okay. Which is, which is another, you know, I mean, that's problematic in, yeah. in 21st century where, you know, we're, we're trying, trying to work into a more inclusive way of understanding things. But it certainly wasn't the way that, that Abraham was understanding it, that he wanted to, uh, because it was, it was most common for, um, for folks in, in the post, <coughs> in, the, in, the early, in the early years of the development of, of, of Judaism, it was most... Um, common for folks to seek marriage from within their own cousins, usually second third, or third cousins, mm-hmm. which for us is a whole lot more unusual and even a little icky. Um, another question I had was, you were talking about marriage as being transactional, yeah. and what's the C word you said? I can't remember. Uh, transactional and contractual. Okay. Can you flush those out? Sure. Um, so, so when we do, when we do marriage, yeah. uh, we have a contract. In fact, our our culture uh, does more with marriage as contract than covenant. Um, we understand in our faith community that covenant is between, let's say, you and I were going to get married, Pat, uh, and we would understand the legal contract be- between the two of us, but the faith contract, uh, the Holy Spirit stands between us and binds us together. So regardless of what the civil contract says, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit binds us together. So it's contractual, but transactional uh, for that time would have been uh, the, the passing of dowry, essentially. Okay. Right? So there's the transaction that's made. You take my daughter and give me this stuff. And it's interesting that here, that doesn't really happen in that way. I mean, the, the, the slave gives some things, but they, they are really given more as gifts than as a matter of transaction. So that's what I meant by those two words. Okay. Um, well, and I noticed that uh, she came from a family of means. Yeah. Uh, 
because they had room for the servant and a place to, to uh, bed the camels. Um, so I thought, well, she's coming from a family of, of some means. Yeah, it seems like a, a pretty good-sized house. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and, a, and a, certainly a household that uh, is a household of faith because, uh, because they understood what the slave was saying and honored that this was a work of God which, you know, I think for us would be unusual for somebody, for a stranger to come and say, this is what I heard from God, and for us to say, oh, yeah, we agree. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right we, on. We would, yeah. we would have a whole lot of uh, questions about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else? I mean, the, the rabbit hole that I did not go down uh, – was really and Andrea Andrea helped that by talking about marriage with the kids. Um, you know we're we're in a in a time when uh, it's rare for me to to marry a couple that hasn't already been living together, Correct. right? So our standards uh, about marriage are very different than they were in that time. So I did not go through to go down the whole rabbit hole of of um, how we kind of we kind of look down our noses on cultures that do. Uh, arranged marriages at the same time we don't do any better <laughs> no. right I mean yeah. our, our divorce rate is high um, uh, folks um, are choosing not to be married at all fewer and fewer are choosing to be married by a, by a pastor uh, anybody can get a can get an online uh, certificate of ordination that allows right. them to do marriages so at some level it, it um, sort of takes that that sense of this covenant uh between humanity and God, it kind of, it, it makes that difficult because we're doing that less and less. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, yeah, I'm glad you didn't go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, it was long enough as it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing I, I like that you said was the, was the waiting and the, what was the other word? Mm-hmm. Waiting and moving. Yeah. Waiting yeah. and moving. And that, that, that becomes kind of a, a dance that we do with God, um, this, this waiting and moving, waiting and moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, tr- that's true of our lives. Yes. You know, we, um, you know, we do something and, you know, we get a nudge and we do something and then uh, hmm, life goes on and then we get another nudge and maybe we wait some more or, or maybe we, we choose to act on that. But I, I like that flow of the story. Uh, when I was in, uh, on Tuesday night when we did the lectionary, um, I didn't pick up on that, but I, li- I like that movement of the story. It's not a crescendo, you know, there's some action, and then it has a peak, and then a, a denouement. It's just waiting and moving and waiting and moving. And I, th- I wonder if, uh, if God does that deliberately. I think so, in the same way that God was was not in the picture in the story. Yeah. Um, sometimes God backs off, yeah. and that's that is our waiting time, and then and then God sees what our move is going to look like. Um, you know, Celeste on um, on Tuesday night, I think it was Celeste. No, it wasn't Celeste. Sonia? It was uh, Sonia. Um, she was talking about from her study Bible, they were talking about how every character in, in this had a decision to make and a move to make. And, uh, and I think that was really right, that, that everyone has a decision. 
um, to make and that, and that ultimately uh, to make a godly decision happened all the way through this. Yeah. Such a, and, and totally different from the other chapters we've done so far in Genesis where, where there's been much more drama of not doing the godly thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right, though. Everybody, even Rebecca's uh, brother and yep. and sister-in-law, I mean, right down, everybody yep. that was involved in that story had to make a decision, and some more than one. Yeah, yeah. indeed. I um, was sort of struck. What I often do um, when, I, when Jess and I are dividing up our, our preaching schedule, I often go to the scriptures that we choose and go back and look at what I've done in my... Uh, in my now rather extensive career, I look at when I've preached this. I've never preached this text. Really? Never preached Genesis 24 that I could find. And I, and I don't remember ever doing it. I remember teaching it, um, but I don't remember preaching it. So getting into it, was this was the first time. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of text there. And, and it's always been my thought that um, – from the churches that I've attended that preachers tend to preach on the New Testament, tend to, not mm-hmm. always. But I think there's a wealth of, of story in the Old Testament that has, to some degree, not necessarily by you and Jess, but that have not been preached. And I think it opens up a, a new uh, way of thinking. You know, uh, when Jess talked last week about... about um, the people of God moving from um, uh, polytheistic to monotheistic was a revelation for me. I never thought about the mm. Old Testament in that light. Never. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, you know, I mean, I knew that they worshipped agricultural gods and, and stuff, re- all related to agriculture, but I had no idea uh that there was this movement from polytheistic to monotheistic, and I found that to be very helpful last week and this week too. Yeah, yeah we, and we need to keep those things in mind because we tend to take this Bible as this, this monolith of information. Uh-huh. And it's always been the same, and, and things have changed. The other thing is that we were tracking uh, the change from uh, a cult of sacrifice. You know, the early, the, our early faith tradition was around sacrifice, yeah. God re- requiring the sacrifice. Uh, and then we move into God requiring law, uh, just do these things and you don't need to do the sacrifices anymore. Uh, and then we move into um, an understanding that we are in relationship to God by faith through grace, um, in which moves us into, into what we call our New Testament. But it's really one long uh, evolution of our, of our understanding of God and I, and I think of God un- God's understanding of us as well. Yeah. What it, what it takes to be in relationship with us. But I've, uh, I like the booklet that you gave us. Good. Uh, and I found, uh, I really have found the, uh, the sermons to be very enlightening and have never, I don't think I've ever heard uh, uh, messages strictly from the Old Testament, like in a series, you know. So I think it's refreshing. Well, hang on, because we're we're not done. We've got twelve weeks of it. So twelve yeah. weeks. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else occur to you that you want to? I don't think so. I not that I, uh, not that I can think of. Um, except for the nudge part that we all need to hear. 
that um, and the other part of being a person of faith is that you remember you know Abraham you know God is is passive but Abraham knows you know uh, he knows what he has to do uh, to fulfill what what God has promised him. Right. He knows that he can, and and that's the thing. At least for me, is I sometimes forget that stuff, and I I go from day to day, and I don't remember back a week ago or two weeks ago when I'm when I'm thinking about doing something that um, I was nudged and I need to act on it. Yeah, I was, um, I'm always reminded of uh, oh, Rabbi Baal Shem Tov uh, said that f- f- to forget is to live in exile. Yeah. To remember is the secret of redemption. So all of these texts are really uh, remembering texts. They, they connect us, just as, just as for us, the meal that we just shared, the communion meal is a meal of remembrance to reconnect us um, to what we've known from the past. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, before we go, um, because I don't think we've we've done this, and I think it'd be important, I'll just put you on the spot. You are Deacon Pat Cadillier, retired, right. fully ordained uh, deacon. And uh, talk a little bit about what a deacon is in the United Methodist Church. Um, deacons connect the church to the world. Um, we don't have a flock that we shepherd, um, but we are involved with the activities in the community where needs are not meant, and we encourage those in the church to become involved with things, sometimes in, within the church and primarily outside of the church. We are uh, a ministry of uh, justice and mercy. Um, and of, you know, encouraging people in discipleship, uh, assisting with uh, communion like I did this morning, uh, pastoral cares, which is what my primary focus was. All deacons have a specialty, uh, whether it's, it's pastoral care, whether it's music ministry, Christian ed, uh, discipleship. Um, and we have that specialty that we like to use and follow God's call to fulfill in churches. Right. Um, so fully ordained, as an elder is fuller, fully ordained, a, a couple of differences, so you just named a bunch of them. Uh, you're, you're called to a particular kind of ministry. You're also not guaranteed an appointment. That's you are right. responsible to find your own appointments. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, deacons find their appointment in, in a local church. Um, more often than not, uh, they have a primary appointment somewhere else. It might be in a hospital as a chaplain. It might be uh, in a school as an educator. And then a secondary appointment uh, in a local church because part of the living out of the deacon life is being connected to the local church. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and both of those are your responsibility to find those, uh, those appointments, right. and then usually the board of ordained ministry and the and the and the bishop say great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we we are charged to find our own spots. Right. Yep. Uh, and if we have a job that's an employment that is outside of the church, um, it's our responsibility to connect uh, with a church, right. so that we can be part of that congregation. Yeah, and then the church approves, like it happened here, right. that the church approved my um, 
uh, appointment here. Right, because you were you were chaplain at the time you first uh -huh. came here. Correct. But your your longer history was in education. That's right. Yeah, and 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 in a lot of ways that was my ministry. Yep. Um, it was it was just um, and actually the call to ministry came as an outgrowth of my experience in education. One of those God nudge things. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you for, for uh, filling us in. I think people, and even people who have been around a long time, uh, still don't really understand the um, the ordained deacon. In fact, yeah. we're both on the board of ordained. Well, you just went off the board as a retired person. Correct. But uh, even on the board, we have to keep explaining to people what, what the deacon is. Yes, we do. All right. Well, we thank you for joining us. And Pat, thank you so much for taking the time and, uh, and the insight. Appreciate you. My pleasure. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay.